Judges 6. So we'll read there in a minute. I just wanted to make a few remarks before we actually get into reading our text. We've talked out of Judges several times here since I've been teaching. And, you know, Judges, to me, it's a troubling book. So, you know, the stories are fascinating and it's filled with a lot of drama. But you have with Judges this continual cycle where God's people fall into rebellion and then he has to send chastening, usually through some oppressive nation. And it causes them then to cry out for help and the people repent. And then God will raise up a judge who rescues them and then there's peace for a, a period. And then the cycle just starts over again. And actually, if you really follow the book and read it, it keeps getting worse and worse. It's like going that way, spiraling downhill. And their punishment becomes longer, their peace is less, and the judges become kind of more and more corrupt that God uses. And Israel just, it seems like they can just never maintain a constant devotion to God. So when you're reading that, he raises up this judge by his grace and miraculously delivers Israel. Inside there's something in me, even though I've read it how many times, they just continue on, you know. Couldn't they have learned their lesson? But instead, he just comes right back to the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The cycle starts all over again, all the way up to the ending chapters. And Judges is really kind of summed up in Judges chapter 2.10, the whole book. It says, all that generation were gathered under their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. That was really what became their problem. They knew not the Lord, didn't serve him, and they didn't know the works that he had done. So Judges 6 here, this is the story, in case you don't know, of where God raises up the judge Gideon to judge Israel. And so here we have an account, we'll read this story, where his people are faced with insurmountable odds. And we also, though, here's a generation that it is said they have not experienced the works of the Lord, and they didn't know him. And as a result, because of the way they lived, they were oppressed by a multitude. But here again, in their weakness, they cry out to God, and God sends them a marvelous deliverance through Gideon. So that's a common theme in the Bible, where people are facing insurmountable gods, and God sends deliverance through a small number. And so we all know the account of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. The children of Moab and Ammon are a great multitude, and they're coming after Judah. And so what was Jehoshaphat's reaction to all of that when he sees it? He proclaims what? He proclaims a fast. And it says there that all of the people, all of the people in Jerusalem and Judah sought for the Lord, it says, for help. They sought him for help because they realized they were in trouble. And I was talking to a brother earlier this week, and it's like he said, you'll never seek the Lord in vain. And that's true. I thought about that many times. It is never a waste of time to seek the Lord, to get before him and pray and to fast like they did here. So the odds they're looking at with Jehoshaphat were overwhelming. So in the natural Judah was doomed to destruction. And, you know, honestly, Jehoshaphat, it says he initially was afraid, like many of us are. When we get in a trial, we're, we realize in the natural we're doomed. And he was afraid because they were totally and helplessly outnumbered. But what I want us to hear, here is part of Jehoshaphat's prayer. He gathers all the nation together. They've all been fasting and seeking the Lord. And here's what he prays to the Lord. Listen to this. He says, we stand before this house and in thy presence and cry unto thee in our affliction. Then thou will hear and help. Listen to what he says. For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. That's a great prayer, isn't it? And that's a prayer of faith. But, you know, you just get that picture, and later on it talks about them and their little ones. They're all saying it, and it says their eyes are upon me. They're in a trial, and we have no strength. He's realized there's nothing I can do to overcome what's coming my way, and I have no idea what to do. Many times I've been in situations where I feel like I have no might against what's coming against me, and I honestly do not know what to do. So what did Jehoshaphat and Israel do? We've already said it. They sought the Lord. It says repeatedly, they fasted and they prayed and they turned their eyes to him. And it says, all Judah, they stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, 
and their children. We're looking here, it's basically this helplessness and it's families. And they're standing before God with their families, these men, and they're saying, we're lifting our eyes to you. We are looking to you, Lord. The fasting is just saying, we are helpless. If you don't come and help us, we are doomed, and we know it. And our little ones, we're going to watch them get massacred. Their lives are on the line with what they're doing here. Did God help them? We know the story, don't we? Had it taught many times here. So is it true we're saying it's never in vain to seek the Lord? Is it true what it says in the Psalms that the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing? There is no way you're going to take time to get your life right and get before the Lord and seek him, and he is not going to give you what you need. Or is it true, it also says in the Psalms, they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for you, Lord, has not forsaken them that seek thee. So you're in a trial today. Those are promises right there. He says, when you know his name and you seek him, he will not forsake you. He has not forsaken them that seek thee. And here's what happened. They sought the Lord. They stood before him. They fasted and prayed. They said, we are helpless and desperate. God, we need your help. We don't know what to do. And the spirit of the Lord, it says, it came. It rushed upon one of the Levite priests. And here's what he said. Hearken, all ye Judah and all ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. The Lord will be with you. And we'll be talking more about the Lord being with us. Oh, man. And they believed, it says, what was said. Because here was their reaction to that. They hear those words from this man. It's just a word at this point. Their circumstances hadn't changed one iota. But they get that word from the Lord, and it says, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And listen, that is all faith needs. You get that word from the Lord, and you know inside you that came from the Lord. However it came, through reading his word, somebody having a prophecy, a brother with a word of knowledge, whatever it is, you get that word, and faith knows that it's from God. Inside, you know all is well, even though outside, nothing's maybe changed in your trial. And God, we know, wrought a mighty deliverance. And why did he do that, though? It was because the people sought him with all their heart. So there's a similarity here in the sense of they're facing great odds against an oppressive enemy, and they're weak. That's what we're going to find here with Judges 6 and the story I just told you out of Second Chronicles 20. But there is a major difference in what caused the conflict they faced. And so let's begin reading in Judges 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll see what that was. Judges 6.1, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, even they came up against them, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. Till thou come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. 
So one thing we need to remember in reading these accounts is this is real history. There were real families that lived through seven years of this oppression. And they would grow their crops every year. And then right before they were ready to be harvested, the Midianites and the Amalekites and others would invade their land. And it says in verse 5 that it was like grasshoppers. Really, it's like a locust invasion. It, when the locusts would come, they would just strip all vegetation to where there was nothing left. And they're saying when the Midianites came in there, that is what Israel looked like. Stripped everything bare. Took whatever crops they could to eat, and they let their cattle graze. And there was just nothing left for Israel. Stole all their livestock. And it says in verse 6, Israel was greatly impoverished. And they had to flee their homes every time they came, and they had to go live in dens and caves in the mountains. And so just imagine how those families would have felt, how the little kids that lived in those houses would have felt. You know, they'd be like, you know, the little girl, Mommy, are, are those mean men going to come back again this year? And she'd be like, well, I hope not, dear. You know, Daddy's got a great crop going this year. And she's like, yeah, but Mommy, he's had one for the last six years, and I'm just always hungry. I never get to eat any of it. And do we have to live in that old cave again and on that cold, wet floor? You know, we live in that cave more than we live in our own house. And on and on and on, don't have anything left. And you think that went on every year, year after year, for seven years. And so probably the first year that happens, when the Midianites come in there, they're probably thinking, well, you know, that was just a bad year. That's just a trial. You know, we could easily survive this, and next year will be better. But then it happens Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. I think that was seven times. And every time, it's getting worse for them. And it's not getting any better. And there's no relief. And finally, they get to where they just can't stand it any longer. And it says that they cried out to the Lord. There's the thing. Why didn't they do that sooner? Why didn't they cry out to the Lord way before that? And here's why. It's because they were avoiding him, because they weren't serving him. Because look at verse 1. This is the problem. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. The problem is they weren't examining their lives and their hearts in light of God's dealings with them. So this wasn't a trial. This wasn't a trial for Israel. This was chastisement, and it was sent from whom? It says right there in verse 1, sent from the hand of God, because it says the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. So their circumstances that they were facing were directly, the circumstances were directly related to their disobedience. So it wasn't just they were having bad luck for seven years. Seven years, bad luck. Somebody saw a black cat. That wasn't the problem. God himself was punishing them wasn't he? So we can't act like that that doesn't happen. So, you know, we know, and let me hasten to say that trials can last for years, and it's not necessarily the result of sin, because Job, we know, wasn't suffering as a result of sin. So we can't judge somebody, and it's not our business to anyways, because they're going through a long trial, a severe trial, or whatever. We can't judge that, hey, it must be because they're in sin. We don't know. That's not necessarily the case. So how can we tell the difference between chastisement and trials? Well, one way we can know is chastisement comes to those that are in sin and they're not examining themselves. And that's 1 Corinthians 11.31. And Paul writes this. He says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So here's what I would say. Anytime something comes in your life, whether it's sickness, just any kind of trial, something with your children, finances, you're just having all kinds of problems that you realize isn't, something's not right. To me, that's the time, the first thing you should do is, that I would do, is examine my life immediately and say, hey, am I living in sin? Is God trying to get my attention? That's the first thing I would do, rather than just kind of moving on and seeing just how you can cope with stuff, because Israel never did that. They didn't do that. They continue in the evil they were in for seven years. Never stopped to examine themselves. And for them, here's the answer, what the answer would have been for them if they would have said, why is this happening? 
And it's Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That could be the case. And so God finally turned the screws down on his people long enough and hard enough through these Midianites that they finally cried out. And that's what it says in verse 6. It says, And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel did what? They cried out to the Lord in their distress. That's what he was trying to get out of them from the get-go, wasn't he? This is not all happening because he's wanting to destroy his people. That's never God's motive. This is just chastisement. And many times, God's people have cried out to him in their distress. Psalm 34 says, This poor man cried, David wrote, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. And that's what Israel's doing here. But to me, the interesting thing is how God hears and answers their cry. Because what are they crying out for? What does Israel want? They're saying these people are coming in here and we don't have anything to eat. Our life's miserable. Our children's lives, we can't live in our houses. And they're wanting deliverance from the Midianites in their poverty. But how does God answer that prayer? What does he do? He sends a prophet. That's what we have. Verse 7 and 8, it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think that's the answer they were looking for. I don't think that's exactly what they wanted. Like a man said, that would be like a stranded motorist calling a garage for help, and they send a philosopher out instead of a mechanic, right? You know, the guy gets to where your car's broken down, and it, and it begins philosophizing. you know, troubles come in many ways, and often we don't know why. You'd be like, huh? You know, huh? where's the tow truck and the wrenches? I want to get my car fixed. I don't need all that, but that's kind of the way it is, right? And isn't it that way with us many times? We cry out to the Lord, and we want deliverance from poverty. We want deliverance from this sickness we're going through. We want deliverance from my husband, from my parents, or deliverance from whatever. Or they might just get rid of this problem. Life would be great. And God does what? Instead, he sends us his word. He's trying to get our attention because why? He wants us to obey him. And so look back in verses 8 through 10. It says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. This is a lot like what we read in Micah just recently. He says, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. What he's telling them there is he's done it in the past. It's not that he's incapable or unwilling. That's basically what he's telling them with what he's sharing here. It's not that I'm incapable or even unwilling. But what does he say in verse 10? He said, and I said unto you, Man, what a great thing for God to say to any group of people. I am the Lord your God. Don't fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But he's saying, here's the problem. And so we don't like that, do we? You know, we're in a trial and God's trying to get our attention and say, you need to deal with some things in your life. Because that's what he tells him there. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. But that really is love, isn't it? It is. Because they've got to get that straight. So we think a lot of times, don't we, when we get in a severe trial, physical, financial, mental, whatever trial it is, that our greatest need is to be delivered from whatever it is we're suffering. But God knows our greater need, and it really is, our greater need is to be delivered from the sin that is the root cause. And so Hebrews 12 says this, and don't we know this to be true? And our children know this to be true in a physical way, but this, he's talking spiritually. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. It's not pleasant for your kids to get spanked. It's never been pleasant for me to get spanked spiritually by the Lord. It's been grievous, sometimes really grievous. And you're like, man, is this hurting. But I can't wait till this is over. But listen to what he goes on to say. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So when God's just like with our kids, you know, they don't like that pain, whatever. But the fact is, you're not trying to inflict pain on them, are you? You're trying to develop character in them, which is what God is trying to do with us, which is what he's trying to do with Israel, which is what we read in 1 Corinthians. 
We would judge ourselves. We should not be judged. But when God does judge us, it's not to destroy us. It's to keep us from being destroyed with the world. So sometimes he says some are weak, some are sickly, and some even die. Because God's trying to get their attention. And that's the only way he can do it. Really, what was their greatest problem? Was their greatest problem the Midianites or their Baal worship, which is what they were involved with? What was their biggest problem? They would have said, hey, it's not the Baal worship. That's fun. They like that. They would have said, it's these Midianites oppressing us. And God says, no, no, no. That's just the rod I'm using. That's all that is. You got a deeper problem I'm trying to get rid of. And that's why this is all happening. So verse 10 there, God is reminding the people of what they should already know, that he's their God and they don't need any other God. He is all they need. And they just didn't want to listen to that. They hadn't obeyed the voice of the Lord. And we sing the song. So you could say the answer is so simple, but yet it isn't. But it's as simple as the song we sing, Jeremiah 7. Obey my voice, God says, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Oh, that sounds simple, doesn't it? But it, we know it's not that simple. It's never been quite that simple, even though it is. So what was God's answer to the people that needed deliverance, to a people that are oppressed? What is really his answer to these people here? It's one word. Repent. They need to repent because God never sends a blessing on a people that are backslidden or living in sin. You know, before the healing power of the Lord Jesus was manifested, we like to read all of that in the New Testament, but who did God send? Who came before him? John the Baptist. And what did it say his purpose was? To prepare a people for the Lord. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent. And he didn't stop there. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what was the kingdom of heaven? How was that manifested? Through the healings, through the deliverance, through the forgiveness of sins. But he's saying, repent, get ready for that, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. So he's basically saying, get your priorities right. That's what God is saying to us. Like we heard earlier, if we'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else it is that we think we need will be added unto us. So Jesus' healing was manifested to people whose hearts were right with God. And so that's what God's doing here in, in what we're reading in Judges 6. He sends a prophet to prepare, to get the people's heart right before he sends the deliverer. And that's all grace. This is all grace that comes. And so look who he sends as a deliverer, beginning in verse 11. And it says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. You think about that. God himself comes and appears to Gideon. Now, he is the only one that God manifested himself as the pre-incarnate Christ, the only judge, should I say. It happens many times in the Old Testament, but he was the only judge, and that is God's grace. God's grace is manifested so much through this calling of Gideon, it's not even funny. So he comes and he appears and sits under an oak tree and he says he's just watching Gideon. That's kind of funny, isn't it? He didn't have to do that. The Lord knows everything that's going on, but it says he appears, he comes, and he sits under that oak tree and he's watching Gideon do what? He's threshing wheat in the wine press. And what's he seeing when he's watching Gideon? So Gideon is fearful. He's afraid. He's not threshing his wheat like he normally would have done out in the open, but he's hidden in that wine press, as we said, and he's hiding from the Midians. He's not exactly a picture of courage and faith, is he? And listen, so God's watching him this whole time, though. And a lot of times you think about it. What if the Lord came to where you were, came to your house, and just sat and watched you and could see what would he see? What if he could see your thoughts? Would he really see all oh, this person here? Yeah, they're just strong in the faith. Or would he see somebody that's got some fears, got some doubts, struggling within? And believe me, that is what he is seeing here with Gideon. But what we see, though, is God is so gracious. Because he's going to raise up Gideon as his deliverer. So look how he addresses Gideon. He sits there and watches him for a while in verse 12. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, and he says unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. 
mighty man of valor. Well, yeah, if you read through the end of the story, he eventually becomes that, but he is hardly the picture of a mighty man of valor. <laughs> but that is what God says at this point. And look at Gideon's response to that in verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, you just told me the Lord is with you. Well, then why is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And I'm saying, I think that question he raises there, questions, is the question of the day. If the Lord be with us, then why has all this befallen us? I think that's kind of the question of the hour. And that seems to be what some are asking. Where are all these miracles which our fathers told us of? Where are they? We've been hearing about the faith message, what God will do. And, and that can be an honest question, can't it? I believe it can be. You know, the psalmist raised that in Psalm 73. You're all familiar with Psalm 73. He's saying he's looking around and he's seeing the wicked are prospering and he's saying, why are they doing so well? What's going on here? I thought they are the ones that were under the curse and yet it appears my life is under the curse because he writes, all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And he's like, it just doesn't seem fair. Where is God? He's asking. And the psalmist went on to say, I almost backslid over this whole issue where things aren't what they are supposed to be as far as God's power being manifested, the justice of how everything's working out. I'm going through this long trial, but the heathens seem to be prospering. And it says, then he went into the sanctuary and got before the Lord. And it says, then he saw the end of the wicked. God spoke to him. And, but here we're back again. He sought the Lord for an answer. How's come things don't appear to be what you say they should be in your word? And basically, if you go back and read Psalm 73, when he gets before the Lord and he sees the end of the wicked and realizes his complaint, what his complaint has been against the Lord, he's like, whoops, I think I spoke rashly. I made a big mistake. And actually, he says, I spoke as one that was foolish and ignorant. Thought I knew more than I did. And that's what Gideon's doing here. He's talking basically out of his ignorance when he's raising these questions as, where is the God? If the Lord be with us, why has all this happened? So the question he need to ask is, is the God's hand shortened or his ear heavy? Because what Gideon should have been doing is acknowledging Israel's been in sin. He should have been acknowledging their sin and their responsibility and everything that's befallen them. And instead, what he's doing is, in essence, in his ignorance, is he's blaming God. Where is God? Why has he allowed all this to happen to us? And listen, you go down that path, that is a dangerous path to head down. When you start questioning why aren't things happening like God has promised that they should happen. Because God is faithful. Look at here, once again, we see God's graciousness in verse 14. Because the Lord, he doesn't try to defend himself. And he doesn't try to answer the question that was raised. And the other thing is, though, he doesn't rebuke Gideon for even raising the question for questioning God's power and willingness. Look what it says. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? So it says the Lord looked upon him. So he's looking at Gideon. He's seeing Gideon for who he is, that he is somebody that is struggling. He knows that. He knows what they've been through for seven years and what they've seen happen. And he knows that Gideon wants to believe what God said is true, but he's just not sure based on the way things have gone. And that just shows us that God is patient and kind with us. And he meets Gideon where he is. And what does he say to him there? He says, go in this thy might. Go in this thy might or go in this thy strength. Well, let me ask you a question based on what we've already seen with what's going on with Gideon. How much strength and might did Gideon have? How much strength of might do you think he had? So what God's doing here is he's trying to get Gideon to see and admit that he has no strength. Because look at his response. He's what he gets out of him. Look in verse 15. And he said unto him, Gideon said, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's like, go in my strength. Lord, you're telling me that. He's like, what kind of strength do I have? He says, my family is poor and I am the least in my family. 
And I think that's where God is trying to get all of us to be at. So until you feel totally inadequate with what you're facing, why would you pray? Why would you pray? Why would you seek God? And that's what happened to Jehoshaphat, isn't it? When he had that insurmountable army coming his way, he got desperate for God's help and he prayed. And he said, we have no might against this company that comes up against us. And that's basically where Gideon got to. He's like, I have no might. And guess what? The angel of the Lord didn't argue with him. He wasn't like, oh, no, you know, you're more than what you think you are, Gideon. Gideon was right. He was nothing, just like all of us. He's a man of weakness, and he's totally inadequate. And I think that is where the Lord is trying to get all of us to see that that's where we're at. We're the same way. Jesus told us in John 15, he said, without me, you can do nothing. And you read John 15, all of that is in the context of prayer. So God's not looking, I would say, he's not looking for people that have a lot of self-confidence, people that feel like they can tackle any problem, people that they think they've accomplished a lot. I mean, we tend to think, well, those people seem confident and they've got faith in God's blessing. That's not who God's looking for. And that's not who he chooses here with Gideon. He's not looking for people that are strong and have all this confidence. And we tend to think, man, that person there's kind of got their act together. That's not the way God looks at it. So he's looking for people that are weak, least, inadequate. When you're that way and you feel that way, you're in a place where God can manifest his power. That's not a place where it's time to give up just because you feel that way. The church at Philadelphia, think about, here's what Jesus said to them. He says, I know thy works. And he says, behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. And so I think there's people in here, they're feeling like it's all they can do to hold on. I'm holding on to God's word, but at times I feel like I have little strength. And that little strength, little is where we get our word microbe or micron, just a small little particle. And strength is our dunamis word. So he's saying to these people, you have just a little micron of strength. You're barely able to hang on, and that's the way you feel. But he commends them for that. He's tested them to the limit. But what does he say about those people? Despite the fact they felt like they had a little strength, and that's what the Lord says, he says, but you have kept my word. Oh, it was very hard for them. Had to be. That's what he's telling them. And he's commending them for that. And he tells them, hey, I know your works. I've got an intimate knowledge of what's going on on the inside of you and your struggles. And you know what he goes on to say? He says, I'm going to have your persecutors come. These people that have been testing you, I've been using to test you to the limit, making it to where you can just barely hold on. They're going to come and bow down, and I'm going to have them worship before you. And they will know that I love you. God tells that to this church. I'm going to show to this world you had just a little strength. We're willing to hold on to my word unto the end. He said, the world is going to come and bow before your feet, and they will know. They thought, I didn't care anything about you, that they were having their way with you, and that you were weak. You know, most of the New Testament Christians were not these elite people like they are. They were slaves. They were the despised people in the community. It's like, who would want to be a part of that group? They weren't the wealthy. Very few wealthy intellectuals were part of the early Christian church. It's not a group anybody would be that happy. They weren't middle class like most of us are here. They were mostly lower class, despised, weak, base, foolish. But they held on to that word, little strength. And Jesus says, hey, they're going to know that I loved you. And listen, that is the one thing that will sustain us in any trial, that God loves us and that God is with us. Because look at the answer the Lord gave Gideon here in verse 16. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. That's the Lord's answer to Gideon's plea of weakness. So he says, Gideon, you go in your strength and you save Israel. You go in your strength and save Israel. He's like, Lord, I don't have any strength. I'm weak. I'm the least in my parents' family. And he's like, I know you don't. That's what I've been wanting you to see. But he would have probably said if it was today, but I 
the Lord Jesus Christ have all power in heaven and earth. It's given to me, and lo, I am with you. It doesn't matter what you have. I'm the one that has all power and strength and authority. It's been given to me, and I am with you even unto the ends of the earth, wherever you go. So he says, I'm not just sending you, Gideon, to deliver my people. I am going with you. I will be with you. And that is the same thing. That's a pattern we see in the Bible. That's what the Lord said to Moses. Moses did the same thing. He claimed, I'm inadequate. I can't speak. How am I going to deliver these people? I'm sure he felt weak. And here's what the Lord said. Now, therefore, behold. Listen, it's just like this story in a different way with Exodus. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, the Lord said to Moses. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said to him, He said, Certainly I will be with thee. That was his answer to him. So have you ever said that in your heart? I have. Who am I? Who am I that God would answer my prayers? Who am I that God would manifest his power to provide my needs or heal my child or use me to cast out demons or give me a word of encouragement to somebody that needs it? Who am I? I deal with fears and insecurities all day long. Who am I, Lord? I don't feel like I have any spiritual strength. That's what we see with Gideon. That's what we see with Moses. We see that many times. God doesn't want people that are self-confident in themselves. So I'd say if you feel that way, it's the time to take courage. You're in good company. God told Moses, certainly. He says, I can't, Lord. I, he says, no, wait a minute. Certainly, I will be with you. No doubt about it, Moses. Just rest in that. Gideon says the same thing. Who am I? I'm the least of my father's house. I'm sitting here afraid, threshing wheat, and you're saying I'm going to go deliver from the Midianites? I'm going to beat them down like they're one man? And God says, no, 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 wait. you got to listen to this, Gideon. Surely I will be with you. That makes all the difference in the world. And what does God tell us? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man will do unto me. So honestly, really, if we really believed that God was with us, everyone here, shake your head. Would you not feel like you could face any trial knowing that God is with you and you're not struggling with that? It'd be easy, wouldn't it? I think it would be. And listen, and I'm saying facing a trial without fear. You know, it's like, this guy's been picking on you, and you got a bigger brother that's twice the size of him, and your brother goes with you. You're strutting around that guy. You're not worried about him anymore, are you? And that's the way it is, but just because we can't see the Lord, he is certainly and surely with us. That's what he says. To me, in studying it, it is just amazing how much grace God shows to Gideon over and over again to bring him out of his fear and unbelief, and he'll do that for us. You know, sometimes you think, oh, man, I doubt it. That's the end of it. No, that's not the case. He's struggling all along here. If you're honest about things and come before the Lord, he will bring you through. And he will give us assurance, give us signs that he's with us. You're like, signs? I'm not supposed to seek signs. Yeah, you're not supposed to seek signs. But God will give you signs that he is there with you in a trial. Look what he does for Gideon, verses 17 to 23. Look here. Gideon speaking, and he said unto him, verse 17... If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until you come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid, and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes, 
And then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto you, fear not, thou shalt not die. And so look at the patience of God with Gideon's insecurity. He'd already given him his word several times, hadn't he? <laughs> and that should have been enough. I'll be with you. I will deliver the Midian. But here, God understands our frame. He understands that we are human flesh and are battling doubts and fears. And you think about it. Gideon asked the Lord of heaven to sit and wait while he goes and prepares an offering. And the Lord just patiently sits and waits. You think about it. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You tell him, hey, could you just wait here a minute? I'll be right back. I got some stuff I have to go do. He might have been gone an hour or two. He wasn't going to get all that ready in five minutes. <laughs> and look what he says. Look at verse 18 at the end there. He says, I'll depart not hence, I pray thee. Oh, I beg you until I come to thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And the Lord said to him, that's fine. I'll wait. I'll wait until you come again. And that to me is amazing. So you think about what God has done. Gideon doesn't ask him for it. He basically demands a sign. From the Lord that this is him talking to him and then he says I'm gonna tell you what the sign's gonna be and then he asked him to wait just wait for me to get it ready that to me is the grace of God and he finally gets everything ready the angel of the Lord says all right well here's how you have to arrange everything this certain way and I want you to pour that broth all over it takes his staff and reaches out says when he touches the flesh and the cakes fire comes out of the rock consumes everything and then he vanishes from before his eyes could you imagine that and it isn't until this point Gideon realizes who he has been talking to because before he initially he's just calling him sir it says Lord in the King James it's just uh, respect he doesn't know who he is but here now all of a sudden he realizes that this visitor was God himself so here he went from hey I need assurance that this is God sending me and once he gets that assurance and realizes God himself is sending me, he is full of fear. It's just like, this is a little bit more than I wanted. So he wants to know God is sending him, but when he realizes God is sending him and who he is and his holiness and his power, just all of that, he's like afraid for his life all of a sudden, that he has seen God. And God has to assure him, listen, I'm not going to destroy you. That's not why I came. And that's where we get our... Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. He spoke peace to him, which is what he has to do. Speak a word of peace. And listen, when we commit our trials to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek him, he will give us that same peace in our heart, won't he? That all is well and everything's going to turn out. I want to finish this up next week. And that's all the further I want to go. But what have we learned today from this story of Gideon up to this point? You know, Paul wrote that the things that happen to Israel, they happen for our learning, for our admonition. So Israel did, we saw at the beginning, they suffered at the hands of the Midianites. Why? Because they were not listening to the voice of God. They're living in disobedience. And I would just ask you today, has God been speaking to you about any kind of sin in your life that you need to deal with? And only you would know that. I don't have anybody in mind. I don't have any idea. But has he been speaking to you? Because... A lot of times things are not the way they should be in your life, in the church, in your family, and it's not a trial. It's because of sin. And God's trying to wake you up, and so we need, part of our lives, we need to examine our hearts and our lives to see whether we are in the faith. And if you seek the Lord, He will clearly show you. I've never spanked my kids once and left them in the dark on why that's taking place. He'll let you know. So you can deal with it because that's his purpose. He wants us to be able to deal with things in our life, get rid of the bales, get rid of the idolatry, get rid of the worldliness so that he can bless us and be our God and walk with us. That's what he's after. He wants us to have holy characters, to be like him. That's what he's after. Like I say, we all know that. Sent that prophet to backslidden Israel in answer to their cry, and that was grace. And so it says in Psalm 107, he sent his word and healed them and then healed them. So it's repentance before the blessings. 
But here, the other thing is, maybe your conscience is clear. You know, hey, there's no sin in my life. I've examined all that, and you're walking in the light that God's given you. Then I would say what we're seeing next is God, we see with Gideon, he wants us to acknowledge our weakness and our inadequacies. And look, that way we can experience his saving power in our life when we're looking to him. Because Paul said what? He said, I'm not going to glory, 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I'm not going to glory in these revelations I received, and they were great revelations. You know what Paul said he's going to glory in? He said, I am going to glory in my weaknesses. What? You think, man, that sounds crazy. Glory in your weaknesses and your infirmities, but that is where God wants us to be, to recognize that we, in and of ourselves, are utterly hopeless and helpless without him. And then he could say to us, when we get to that point, what he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul wrote this, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that is backwards from the way we are raised to think, especially here in America, right? Paul says, I take pleasure, and that word means I take delight. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. He takes delight in infirmities and weaknesses, necessities, distresses, all of the things that we want to avoid and get rid of as quick as possible. And Paul says the reason he delights in them is because that is the way he experiences the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. Wow, that's what he said. And the Lord appears to Gideon. What does he call him? He says, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon knew he wasn't that at all, wasn't he? But God told him twice in that chapter that he would be with him. And that makes all the difference. Because like I said, without him, we can do nothing. But we have the Lord not only with us, but in us. And so despite our inadequacies and our fears and whatever all else, when that's the case, we know that we then are more than conquerors through him that loves us, that we are mighty men and women of valor, and that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So his presence with us, knowing that, that he's with us, just like he was with Gideon, is what gives us our courage and hope to make it through our trials in this day. And just like he did for Gideon, he will give us that assurance that he's with us and that he's the one that has spoken to us. And so it could be a message that comes. We've been hearing, like with Jake's message, a message that's just tailored to your needs. That's the way God can give you that assurance that he is still with you. You may still be in that trial, but through that message, you're encouraged that he's speaking to me. He's given me a word to get me through. Or he could give you an answer to prayer. Answers to prayer should be happening all the time. And that's the way God could say, hey, look, I'm still with you. You may have this other thing over here you're dealing with, but it's not like I'm not answering any prayers or showing you that I'm there. He'll give us those tokens or those signs that he's there. It may be when you're reading the Bible. You're struggling with something. All of a sudden, boom, there's something that comes alive, and it's dealing with the very thing you need to hear about. That should be happening all the time with us in here. Or he can just give you that peace that passes all understanding as his token of assurance that, hey, I am with you. And that comes from the Holy Spirit's presence. So I'd say, hey, let's not be discouraged just because we feel weak and inadequate. Instead, let's realize, like with Gideon, that people like us and him, those are the kind of people God uses. Those are the kind of people that are instruments in his hands, and those are the kind of people that will see his deliverance. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for your word, and we just thank you for this example of Gideon, Lord, and Israel, that even though they had brought on this chastisement themselves, but Lord, in your grace, you spoke a word to them and spoke a word of repentance and set up a man to be their deliverer. Gideon, who came, you raised up. He was an inadequate man, a man full of fears, but yet, Lord, you encouraged him. 
and brought him to a place where he became a mighty deliverer for Israel. And we just thank you, Lord, for that example and that you'll do that for all of us here. And we just pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.